Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast. And ours two happy pride from us at Queens of the Bees. I am TJ, your ever emotionally needy, narcissistic, vain, utterly self-absorbed Pisces. And you are? Uh, oh, is it my turn now? Oh, I'm Aaron. Who is a rather emotionally reserved, but yet can be flamboyant. Aries. Yeah, when I feel like it. You know. And speaking of flamboyance, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about? Oh, uh, all that musical crap. <laughs> we are talking about the wonderful, and I'm sorry I called it crap, because it actually is awesome. We are talking about the two seasons of uh, Schmigadoon. We are talking about the two seasons of Schmigadoon, which will be the second episode we released during Pride Month. The first one, of course, being Little Mermaid, and, you know, we being of an of a exuberant and musical-minded frame here at, uh, at Queens decided we're good to go along with Schmigadoon. It's timely, it's pride, you know, there's so much dreariness and misery in the world, why not seek out some queer joy? So we chose Schmigadoon. Sure, yeah, that's it. There's a reason for our madness. <laughs> so, what is Schmigadoon about, exactly? Hell if I know. <laughs> that's a very good way to find it. Um, it is a musical. It has uh, Cecily Strong, famous for, of course, being an SNL, mm-hmm. as Melissa, um, uh, who is a surgeon, yes? Or mm-hmm. she, yeah, and then... We also have Keegan Michael Key, who plays her fiance, later husband Josh, who was also a doctor. And after experiencing some relationship difficulties, mm-hmm. they go on a retreat, a couples retreat, run by a couple of crunchy, run by a couple of crunchy granola folk, and then they get lost in the woods and end up in a small town called Schmigadoon, which of course is a riff on the f- classic musical Brigadoon. Mm. Is it? Imagine that. And then... You're saying this wasn't an original premise? I'm shocked. (laughs) And then all sorts of musical hijinks ensue. They meet all sorts of fabulous people uh, who the cast includes Alan Cumming, Ariana DeBose, Kristen Chenoweth, Fred Armisen. Uh, it's It's an embarrassment of riches. It's a truly great cast. They end up rediscovering their love for each other. They leave Schmigadoon, but then experience ennui mm-hmm. and sort of apathy mm-hmm. in other words that don't end in E <laughs> and they return or try to return to Schmigadoon only to end up in Chicago, <laughs> which as you might have guessed is a seamy slithery slimy I don't know what is with me and all the wordplay today but it's this you know spoof on the the various dark and gritty musicals of the 1960s and 70s mm-hmm. in which they meet the same cast as they met before mm-hmm. but in a different form along with some new characters including my all-time favorite Titus Burgess who is fabulous as the narrator of the second season um, where once again they have to sort of rediscover their love for each other which they do and then they depart into the future which you know just to sort of preface what we're going to talk about I would be okay if this was just a two-season show. Like, I would love to see more. I would mm-hmm. love to see the move into, like, the Lloyd Webbers of the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if this is where they end up, then that's fine, because it ends up nice and happy and tied up in a nice, nice neat bow. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. And I was going to say, one reason why we're doing both seasons together, despite the fact that they uh, both uh, seasons have a very different premises, they take different musicals, different uh, genres of musicals, as their sort of 
point of departure. But as TJ pointed out, it's the same cast. And there are direct allusions between the two seasons, despite the very different settings. And not just sort of the coincidental casting of basically the same people from season one to season two. Uh, it's actually directly commented on all the way throughout season two that there are these direct tie-ins to season one. So that's why we're going to just treat them all together. Exactly. I mean, among other things, one of the people they meet is Alan Cummings... <laughs> Aloysius Manlove, Manlove <laughs> in the first season, who is the mayor of Schmigadoon, who is, you know, clearly a thwarted homosexual. Mm-hmm. And part of the narrative is that he comes out as mm-hmm. a result of Josh and Melissa's presence. But then in the second season, he's Dooley Blight, who is the butcher and also the stand-in for Sweeney Todd. Yes. So, But of course, Melissa and Josh, being of the real world, they see him as the same person. Yes, and exactly. Even though he is not the same person. Exactly. Diegetic. Yeah, that's the thing that makes this, I think, work as sort of an interesting parody, not only of musicals and not only of, and we're going to talk about sort of how, you know, this is a musical series, sort of, it doesn't just parody, it also sort of goes beyond that with these it other does, things. Yes. It also does a great take on the anthology series, I think, in so doing, where we have, you know, characters meeting the same actors from one season to the next but whereas and and when that happens in anthology shows we just sort of accept the conceit that these are different people (laughs) here we're like the two main characters recognize that it's the same people that they saw before in the previous series (laughs) but though the characters themselves don't understand that right and i mean i i really love that about the show i love its self-referentiality like i'm always you know as an as an english major i love a bit of self-reflexivity and I mean, but this all begs the question of why did we choose this show when it's about a straight couple discovering straight love mm-hmm. and only incidentally brushing against queerness? I would argue, of course, that there's always something intrinsically queer about the musical and that queer desire always kind of percolates in the musical as a form and that even when it helps inspire straight people to find love, like there's even something joyful and gay about it if mm-hmm. you, will. <laughs> you know in both senses of the word yeah um so that's part of the reason i wanted to talk about it this in addition to Al- aloysius which it drives me crazy that Alo- Alo- aloysius is spelled aloysius but pronounced aloysius yes. <laughs> like that will always perplex me <laughs> for the rest of my life exactly that's just something you'll have to learn to accept, I, I will have to learn to accept <laughs> so what what is is queer about Schmigadoon? And so for me, one of the things that I'm going to do, and this is a big departure for me, I actually do want to think about queerness more in terms of queer theory, <gasps> as opposed to, I know, right? Gasp. Gasp is correct. A great theatrical gasp. <laughs> because I often don't want to do that. I often want to talk about queerness in the more traditional sense of talking about actual sexual identity and, mm. and sort of deviations from what, you know, for a long time was considered normative sexual identity. But here, I think it's actually useful to break out some of that grad school queer theory stuff to talk about what this series does because it in in so many ways it challenges it reframes and repackages our expectations about form and genre mm. and story in so many ways that I actually think are interesting and my apologies to my grad school professors for all of the pushback that I gave you when we would talk about queer theory and I always wanted to just talk about identity <laughs> because there really is value in the queer theory approach for something like this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously a lot of people have written about what makes, and we talked about this last week with The Little Mermaid, about what makes musicals appealing to queer people. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot about that because it would have been easy for Schmigadoon and Schmicago to sort of take a condescending view to the musical and sort of empty it of its queer 
exuberance, but it doesn't do that. In mm-hmm. fact, for Melissa, like the music was a form has always been key to sort of her longing, her sense of self, like helping her make sense of the world. Whereas for Josh, mm-hmm. it's very much, you know, he only comes to it reluctantly. Yeah. So that being said, certainly in the first season, what's interesting is that in, in the first season more than in the second brings out the implicit queerness of the musical form to the explicit because mm-hmm. you know a key thro- plot thread is Aloysius men love not exactly mm-hmm. subtle which you know the musical is not really known for its subtlety as a form you know he is yearning after the the parson <laughs> by Fred mm-hmm. Armisen mm-hmm. who though not himself queer is very queer. Yes. Like, he is very queer. His performance is very queer. More in the queer theory sense. <laughs> yes, in the sense of being disruptive, not not quite normative, just mm-hmm. left of center, if you will, as yes. my mother would say. Um, but it's very interesting to me that, you know, Aloysius is queer in so many ways. Like, it's obviously it's played by Alan Cumming, who doesn't make a secret of his own sexuality. Um but also, like, the way that his mustache is turned up, the, the very effect and very well-mannered, dandyish mm-hmm. way in which he dresses. Like, everything about him reads as queer, both in the sense of, you know, actually desiring men, but also of not being traditionally masculine or not being, like, what we would associate with a particularly traditional form of masculinity. Certainly not in the musical genre. Mm-hmm. Like, even within the musical genre, he would be a little bit light in his loafers. Exactly. He's he's more the fae character yes. of it <laughs> than the more sort of traditional man right. that you would have in a, in a show like that. And it's, but I mean, it's nice that the musical, in, the, in this case, gives him, you know, his own musical numbers. His love isn't a, fo- a source of mockery. In fact, it's quite compassionate. Even his wife, his, you know, well-meaning and loving wife. <laughs> mm-hmm really accepts him once she gets through her heartache. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's that lovely song where she's singing about, you know, her lovely husband and all this mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> and it's it's all quite lovely, really. Yeah. And I and I appreciate that about yeah. the show. And what I love about it is that, you know, by being set in this sort of, like, fictionalized past, it gives us the chance to sort of go back and rethink what queer experiences might have been like mm. prior to our modern-day approaches to understanding sexual identity and all of that kind of stuff. That's what makes the, the wife's response so interesting to me because ultimately she comes not just to sort of accept the fact of his homosexuality but even says something like near the end that she's actually you know kind of happy for him mm-hmm. that she's that, that she's loves him and loves that he's able to kind of be himself rather than rejecting him which is what other people thought she would do right. which sounds like a super progressive very modern kind of message uh but i think actually there's a lot of I think there's value in understanding that as an actual old approach Mm. where before all of the modern day politics surrounding gender identity and sexual identity and all of that kind of stuff, this might have been seen as just much more isolated, just this one guy and his one Mm. set of issues and whether she can accept that or not. (laughs) And of course, in the second season, as far as explicitly queer characters, we have Titus Burgess as the narrator, Mm -hmm. who it turns out is actually in the employ of the sinister villain slash Judge Turpin character. Mm-hmm. But it's really just sort of doing all this as a test, which makes me wonder who's doing the test. Like, who is this omniscient character who's actually testing Melissa and Josh within the musical mm-hmm. universe? But anyway, it's Maybe a little, we'll find out in season a, three. Right, this is a metaphysical <laughs> question we don't necessarily need to ponder at this moment. It'll be like Stranger Things. The the really big bad will show up yes. <laughs> later it was, on. Yes, it was the Vecna of, of <laughs> yes. Schmigadoon. That's what I would like to know. Um, but... 
Um, before before we go on, there's one thing that I did want to say. Since you were talking about, uh, you mentioned uh, Alan Cumming and you mentioned Titus Burgess. <laughs> so we've talked about the sort of openly queer men in the cast of, of or in the main cast of seasons one and two. For a musical series, there's not a lot of openly gay men in the main cast. And I just wanted to point that out as what I think is frankly a good thing. Because I think it's time that we've opened up musical theater as a safe place for everyone. <laughs> so straight boys, straight men, <laughs> you are welcome in musical theater. There's a place for you. <laughs> you can join us there. We'd be glad to have you. Yes, I will say. I will add my voice to that, I guess. <laughs> I still think that, you know... We have our safe spaces. We don't need the queers <laughs> or the straights intruding on everything. But I guess we can offer it. I say we shouldn't judge people based on their sexual identities. We should be open and accepting of everyone. I guess. I guess that is in, in the, the ethos of the musical, I suppose. Yes. And in honor of our genre, I suppose we can offer that bit of a fig leaf. Or, oh, what am I saying? Olive branch. Yes. Anyway, so it's also worth pointing out that, you know, as far as like queer figures or, you know, idols, we also have Kristen Chenoweth, whom I love very dearly from her days as Glinda to pretty much everything else. And if there is a musical star who is, you know, <laughs> a true gay icon, she is one of them. And then a newcomer, relatively, Ariana DeBose is both the school teacher in the first season and then the cabaret MC in the second, although she has a much reduced role in the second season. Uh, but she is herself openly queer. Mm -hmm. So, and I love her but we'll get to that later mm, but, so so you openly embrace the queer women but you're still a little bit sus when it comes to the <laughs> but I mean, really what it comes down to is that men like um aaron's fight and um uh what's his name oh uh, jaime camille are just too pretty to be straight it's very frustrating <laughs> to me that they're very straight in real life yes whereas i can accept their straightness <laughs> yes they are very pretty and that is fine <laughs> they are allowed to express their sexuality only, however they see fit right there are only two types of men in this world men who are straight and those who have not yet met me <laughs> or who have met me but haven't yet accepted did you mean men who are together. gay and men who have not yet met you what did i say oh yes that's what i meant sorry Thank you, Aaron, for correcting me. <laughs> anyway, don't need to get distracted. As I was saying, and so it amuses me that in the Titus Burgess in the second season is kind of like, you know, he offers a bit of an ironic presence mm -hmm. and an ironic voice on Melissa and Josh's, you know, heterosexual romance. Mm -hmm. And in the end, like, it's really interesting because he just sort of claims Sergeant Rivera as his lover. At the end, he's like, well, I deserve my own happy ending too, so I'm just going to do this, which is a really, you know... Obviously, queer characters are not strangers to the musical, but they're often, like, lurking at the sidelines or not necessarily brought into the narrative proper. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that that's what Schmalkago and Schmigadoon are both doing. Yes. But I will also say that what also makes this, you know, this show queer in the queer theory sense is also the presence of these big diva figures, like, obviously, Kristen Chenoweth, who plays, you know, a very much more restrained role that I'm used to hearing. Like, there are a few numbers where she gets to really belt it out, but it's much more restrained because she's not really the main character. Mm -hmm. so she doesn't get as much as we might expect. But in the first season, she plays Mildred Layton, the bitter and, you know, snarky and repressive force that really tries to hold everything down, who gets redeemed in the end, which is nice. In the second season, though, she's Miss Codwell, um, who basically is, you know, Miss Lovett, Mrs. Lovett from Sweeney Todd and also Miss Hannigan from Annie. Which I think is actually a much better role for her. And I think yes. is, is 
there's a lot more room for her to be zany and fun as Chris, only Tristan Chenoweth can be. Exactly. Although I think her as Mildred Leighton in the first season is it's kind of wonderful because we get that sort of juxtaposition of the performance she's given versus our expectations ah, yes. of her because the character is so she's wound very tightly (laughs) (laughs) and that is that is about as mildly as i can put that for for that character and so to have someone that you know audiences who are going to seek out you know something like shemiga dune are going to know kristen chenoweth and we're going to know her for more freewheeling performances and so having her be wrapped so tightly was kind of a joy to watch for me yep and that's also really interesting that she offers you know she her major narrative motivation is that she sees josh and uh, melissa as being this grave existential threat to shemiga dune mm-hmm. which is obviously like this little enclave of old-fashioned values and so forth but for her these two interlopers you know are disruptions to the moral order, which yes. is a really interesting sort of narrative mm-hmm. ploy in that both Melissa and Josh get to be the motivators of the plots and mm-hmm. you know are the sort of engines that drive or the energy that drives the engine of yeah. the plot. But also for her character, I think that I like the fact that they chose her and made her sort of the uh, the wife of you know the influential preacher and sort of who involves herself in politics. She actually starts to run, right? <laughs> and I'm like, and that that fight for the moral order historically was a way for women to get involved in Mm -hmm. politics as the defenders of the right values and the right traditions and all of that because of course the idea of women having power in that in that way would have been otherwise incredibly transgressive right so it really only works if she's standing up in the most conservative way possible in order for her to actually seek out power that way i like that that sort of historical like grounding makes its way into this fictional story yeah no i do too and i like it that she even gets to be redeemed in the end rather than say cast out of the story which mm-hmm. very often happens with villains but yeah. she actually gets to have a come around you know especially since her husband leaves her for another man like mm-hmm. you know that's never easy for anyone even the town biddy yep so i have to say which which season did you like better or did you like them in different ways because I, I liked them, them in, in different, different ways. ways yeah so i mean obviously schmigadoon is the very old-fashioned and i think that it's both lovingly spoofing it um, and you know but it draws attention to how that style of musical feels old-fashioned mm-hmm. and it's the, both for us in the audience but also for like miss Melissa and josh like melissa loves that kind of music mm-hmm. she makes it a point time and time again i think has the neatest distillation of why those kinds of musicals remain popular is mm-hmm. because they are about fantasy yeah and escapism and you know there's going to be a happy ending mm-hmm. so you know we understand that all the right people will end up with all the right people that Melissa and Josh will end up together despite the meanderings where they get relatively invested in other people but they also make Schmigadoon a better town for having been there mm-hmm. before they leave yes where season two has a much different kind of plot and I, I think that if season two has things I like about it particularly that it gives Jane Krakowski more to do like mm-hmm. she gets to be like the Billy Flynn yes. corrupt lawyer um, and owns that role like, yes this, she does oh my god I mean I love Jane Krakowski to begin with but she is just perfectly cast mm. both as the Baroness mm-hmm. in the first season but also as this Billy Flynn her lowering down from the trapeze into the courtroom it's wonderful and I love that because it's Jane Krakowski and not say Richard Gere and say the movie version mm-hmm. of Chicago that she's the star and the eye candy yes. in her own numbers which I thought was a really interesting subversion that's true See, this is why it's queer. I mean, it's not, you know, it's gender subversion because she's a lawyer, mm-hmm. obviously, who's, you know, being a crooked lawyer after Josh gets framed for murder in the second season. Um, 
I also appreciate what Dove Cameron does in the second season because mm-hmm. uh, she also has that sort of Velma Kelly, yeah, Velma Kelly, and other kinds of like mm-hmm. um, and Sally Bowles, Sally Bowles, yes, yes and other <laughs> kinds of cabaret. Uh, sorry, uh, what's his name? Fosse kind of characters, mm-hmm. like the short cropped hair, this boyish figure. Mm-hmm. Like she really does a very much better job in the second season, I think, than in the first. Yeah, where she's she, not really given much to do. In exactly, the where she's given this starring turn in in season two and absolutely runs with it. She sure does, and I I, I love the way that. Much as the first season captures so much of what is appealing about that kind of utopian, sort of simplistic, idealistic version of reality presented, or, you know, unreality presented by that particular genre, the musicals of the 60s and 70s were obviously much grittier, darker, Mm -hmm. and, you know, still obviously lots of good numbers, fantastic Mm -hmm. numbers in season two, but, you know, it's a much more mature show mm-hmm. which you know is nice because it's dove's tales with you know the fact that it's a much more mature sub variety of musical mm-hmm. and we don't want to discount because we mentioned some of the shows from the 70s that get referenced here but we don't want to skip the big one from the 60s hair because I did want to push back against the idea that it's just sort of darker and a little bit heavier. That's true. Because it really is still that sense of over, ultimately uplifting. That's true. There is that uplifting sense to season two as well. And I think it's because of the tie in the hair in particular that makes that work so well. Because, you know, whereas I think Chicago is hilarious, but it's also fairly dark. <laughs> whereas, you know, hair has a lot of mature themes to it, but it's ultimately an uplifting show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just, just less familiar with hair, I think. Than, mm-hmm. But I mean, it is interesting to me that like Aaron Tveit goes from playing the sort of bad boy from Carousel in the first season mm-hmm. to, you know, a leader of a commune in the second. I mean, he's brilliant either way. Like, I think that Aaron Tveit is both extremely handsome mm-hmm. and also just a hell of a good singer. Yes. So, but it's, you know, in each case, he, he, whereas in the first season, he sort of is Melissa's dalliance to prove to her that she loves Josh mm-hmm. in the second season he kind of takes Josh under his wing to sort of help him to rediscover you know his sense of self yeah. and his own self-assurance that he's lost as a result of being in the real world of misery that we all otherwise inhabit mm-hmm. so what else do we want to talk about with Schmickadoon or Chicago? I don't know I mean it's, I think it's worth it to talk about uh, you know some of the shows that that get referenced here because obviously there are a lot and to talk about what Schmigadoon and Chicago, the second season do with those things to create this sort of new show we've sort of danced around this idea but maybe let's dive into that a bit yes because I mean one of the things that you know always interests me about spoofs is that as I alluded to earlier spoofs can either be like condescending to their source material or they can celebrate it and sort of inhabit and become themselves an example of the thing Mm -hmm. that they're parroting personally I prefer the second yes I think that those kinds of movies work better because the shtick doesn't wear off as mm-hmm. fast. Like, I'm thinking about, say, like, Scary Movie is not scary. Mm-hmm. It's just a spoof. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's just, it's a, it's a send-up, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But, again, you know, once it goes on beyond one or two or three seasons, mm-hmm. it, or show, or films, yeah. right, vernacular here, it can get really old really fast, mm-hmm. which it definitely does. Yeah, whereas I think a better example of the kind of thing you're talking about is actually Scream, the uh, thing that Scary Movie actually parodies the most. Right. <laughs> because Scream itself is a send-up homage, but also sort of reinvention of the more traditional horror slasher movie. Right, and then becomes the very thing that it was self exactly. before. Because, you know, it's still 
ongoing as I record this podcast. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that's why I think that, you know, because Schmigadoon clearly both understands the musical and why it's appealing and is willing to indulge it as well as amuse us by mm-hmm. this. Because, I mean, perhaps an example. So, Corn Puddin' is, is, <laughs> is a very good example of what I'm talking about. So, in this, right after Melissa and Josh arrive in Schmigadoon, as as tends to happen in these kind of small town musicals, there's a moment where the whole town breaks into song, mm-hmm. singing about as I might, as you might guess, corn pudding, mm-hmm. and it's an absolutely, it's a it's a it's not a banger, it's a it's a bop as the kids say, <laughs> it is a bop, but it's also sublimely ridiculous. Yes, and of course Melissa and Josh as our audience surrogates, like as there are our surrogates as characters. Josh is obviously like, what the mm-hmm. hell is going on? <laughs> Melissa's like, oh, good, it's a number. Mm-hmm. So it's that there's a there's a, a play in which obviously they have now become part of the musical, even as they're also distant from it. Yes, and so I think that that's uh, that's that is a particular example that. I think draws on that particular it mm-hmm. exemplifies the phenomenon I'm talking about. Yeah. And I even love that I hadn't even thought about this until you said this. I love that the show gives us these two audience avatars mm-hmm. who have very different approaches to this. Because of course I'm used to movies and shows that you that do devices like this where there's a character who's sort of the audience surrogate. We don't always get two right. who who disagree with one another on what they're seeing. I actually thought that that was a really nice way to actually explore and deconstruct what's happening in these musicals by having the differential responses, having the more skeptical, you know, frankly, more realistic in a lot of ways, what the fuck is going on response to the, oh, this is great. I'm a fan of this. Let's dissect it response that we get from Melissa. Right. I mean, because, you know, the... I don't want to like put too much pressure on the show that it might not be able to sustain, but I do think it's really fascinating that they, you know, that they are both of the musical, but also distant from it. Mm-hmm. Like, because they're obviously real people in entering into a fictional fantasy world, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, that's a fun way. And I think a really good way of, of playing with the conventions that we associate with musicals that are more self, that are, you know, often self-contained. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's one of the things that I love about shows like Schmigadoon is that they continue to reinvent the musical. I think, you know, a friend of mine, rather dismissively referred to it as an extended SNL sketch, mm-hmm. which I think there's a, something to that, maybe just because it's Cecily Strong, who is yeah. strongly identified with SNL. But I also think that's underselling what the show is doing. Yes. Like, I think that undersells its narrative complexity and the extent to which it really does understand how the musical works as a form. And for me, I feel like that kind of criticism is exactly the kind of criticism I would have given if I had only ever heard of the show but never watched it. It's what I would have assumed that this would be. It would be just an overly extended SNL sketch. Mm -hmm. But I think that it avoids doing that by making this its own standalone series that, again, simultaneously parodies it pays homage but also expands upon all of the source or all of the inspiration material since it doesn't just do one thing with any of the stories or musicals that it references that allows the whole series to have a richness to it like there was never a point at which i felt like i caught up to exactly what the series was doing before it was over because there was there were always multiple layers going on rather than oh let's just do a straight up parody of they both reach for the gun from chicago or let's just do a straight up parody of any of any song from any of these shows right there that never happens right 
it becomes close. Like it, it has a, it sort of understands the typology mm-hmm. of the the kinds of numbers that are being used. Like you know, the when when Kristen Chenoweth's character from the second season is singing about the worst orphans in London, mm-hmm. like a clear homage to the worst pies in London. Mm-hmm. This is love it from Sweeney Todd, but different enough that it you recognize it, but can take pleasure in and of mm-hmm. itself for its purpose. And I think it helps that almost everything is that happens is inspired by at least two musicals. Right. And so even that song is being referenced like of course the song itself very obviously references the worst spies in London. But what she's doing there is drawing more on the influence of Mrs. Hannigan from Annie during the actual performance. Right. So it's not like her stylings and performance also match the song. At the same time, it's like, let's the characterization be like the other character inspiration while she's singing a song from a different show. I think that that helps as well. So that it it never quite feels one note. Yes. (laughs) Nice nice musical pun, I have to say. (laughs) You know, I think that what interests me is that not only is this a very narratively sophisticated show in the sense that you know, both Melissa and Josh change their locations. They change both Schmigadoon and Chicago, but they also are changed by their experiences. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it doesn't shy away from the the spectacle of the musical. Like, yes. I'm thinking, of, you know, it's a very well choreographed show. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the scene in the second season where the Mrs. Lovett standing and the Sweeney are swinging, are singing about getting ready to butcher the orphans. Because mm-hmm. that's the, rather than slaughtering people during the, their haircuts Mm -hmm. this time it's they're just gonna like (laughs) make her the orphans that she takes care of into pies Mm -hmm. like it's a brilliantly put together number because it's obviously very bleak and horrible what they're planning Mm -hmm. but it's not only filled with the kind of like you know soaring songs that you would expect but also the children are also garbed very brightly so there's like this juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of the bright aesthetic with the sinister lyrics which I think is really fun and really playful again it's putting Annie right in the Sweeney top (laughs) and you know I mean in a less subtle show a less sophisticated show that would just feel like just you know bludgeoning us over the head with how many references can you spot Mm -hmm. which there is a certain kind of pleasure to be had when you're watching a spoof to be like oh yes that's referencing oh yes that's referencing but I think that what makes both Schmigadoon and Schmikago work so much better than other spoofs is that it's using them to create something new exactly all of the references actually serve what's happening right in the story and in the styling of the numbers and all of that too it isn't just to see how many references we can fit in it's like we're actually using all of the references well in that sense and i you know i didn't bring this up when we were chatting about it but it occurs to me now in that sense it's a lot like crazy Mm ex-girlfriend a similarly self-referential show that mm-hmm. very often makes uses of very specific intertexts that you identify with a given number mm-hmm. but but uses them for its own narrative purposes exactly and packages them like in and for that show into songs that also serve as really fun interesting standalone songs not just as parodies of the source material right because there are some really good songs in both Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and in Schmigadoon mm-hmm. like obviously Chord Putting for all that it's ridiculous Listen, and filled mm-hmm. with like you know the, the right confet candy carton let me try that again (laughs) filled with the bright cotton candy colors of the classic musical with like lots of bright pinks and whites and you know Mm -hmm. all the things you would expect of this particular genre it's also just a really fun song to listen to but arguably my favorite song from the second season is Ariana DeBose's like farewell number like Mm -hmm. the swan song that she sings in the last season which has nothing to do with the diegesis yeah Except for the fact it's just it's 
pre- prepping us for the farewell to come. Exactly. But it doesn't, like, it's not, like, intertwined with mm. the story. Well, it's, it's 11 just... o'clock number. Type right, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's, wow, is it a good number. Yes. Like, I mean, obviously, Ariana is a great singer. We all know that, having seen her. Well, that's Miss DuBose to you. <laughs> having seen her in West Side Story, having seen her in the first season of Schmigadoon. But, I mean, she really just knocks it out of the park. Like, it, it's almost like watching... What well, it is watching one of the great divas of, of the present. Like mm-hmm. I was having Whitney Houston vibes or show, you know showgirls vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean dream girls? Yes, <laughs> and not mean, not showgirls. That's a totally different vibes there. <laughs> I meant dream girls. Thank you. So you know those kinds of vibes is what I was getting from that number, and it's something that you can listen to in its isolation, but also as part of the show. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. So you know. There's a lot to love about Schmigadoon. I think that, you know, it's one of the shows that has done fairly well, like, ratings-wise. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised that it got a second season. Just because, you know, people know about it, but it's it's one of those shows that it's easy to lose sight of in the streaming mm-hmm. era. And, it, like, it really reminds me that of why I love musicals. Because, you know, musicals are by design to make us think of the world as a better place. At least, you know, Joyful musicals. Mm-hmm. Not so much in, like, Chicago. <laughs> or, you know, well, the Sweeney Todd. Those aren't necessarily happy musicals. But, you know, that's what interests me in particular about this, about Chicago, is that although the, it references and plays on those earlier, grittier musicals, it ends happily. And you, we alluded to this earlier, because in part of because of hair. Mm-hmm. But it's also just because Josh and Melissa are good people. Like, and they are genuinely trying to make their relationship work better. Mm-hmm. And I really think that there's something nice about that and something that is appealing. So, you know, by the end of the second season, they've now, like, rediscovered why they love each other and how to find happiness, even in the midst of darkness. Yeah. Which is a very, you know, a very presentist kind of thing to think about. Mm-hmm. But I also, I hadn't thought about it until you just said that. I also, I think that that's why I like season two in particular so well it's because there's a certain kind of like as opposed to kind of the the pageant the the unrealistic pageantry of the older musical the sort of grittier more grounded musical of that sort of middle period matches i think the kind of realizations that the two main characters make about life that you know at this point they're not looking for the fantasy romance anymore they're actually just wanting to make their marriage work in a much more down-to-earth real sort of way rather than the sort of sunshine and roses that maybe melissa in particular wanted earlier on Uh yeah because i mean the first season was all about each of them sort of discovering their feelings and where they stood in their relationship and particularly like i think josh showed the greatest amount of growth Mm -hmm. in the first season which by the way keegan michael key is just as handsome as i'll get out Mm -hmm. so i just need to put that out there i just needed to Reference mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. in case I hadn't already said it. Stop objectifying, dear. I mean, I objectify all of them on the show. They're men. They're pretty men in a musical. They're supposed to be objectified. That's the <laughs> wow. whole point. Wow. Wow. That did not reflect the views of this podcast. <laughs> As the creative genius behind this podcast, I can assure you that it does. We were all about objectifying men on this podcast. Wow. I don't mean, but all the men in this are pretty. Um, and the guy who plays. Uh, 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 the policeman in the second season ends up doing a very brief spoof of Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. If they do this, if they do have a third season, I hope there's a bit more Rocky Horror because <laughs> you know what's not to love about that. But mm-hmm. anyway, as I was saying, so the second season though it feels like they're both really learning a lot, 
and much I think the, the learning is more evenly distributed than it was in the first season mm-hmm. which of course you know the second season's plot is very silly and ridiculous because you know they're Josh gets frames for murder, then he goes to jail, then he gets released, and then it turns out it's all been a scheme by the Judge Turpin character to... <laughs> oh, but he doesn't get released, he escapes. <laughs> well, that's right. He escapes thanks to the, the hippies. Yes. Um, but it turns out that the Judge Turpin character is really just wants to have, you know, find the perfect wife, and so he's trying to marry... He's basically like a Bluebeard character, so basically tries or to like force... Or like Judge Turpin. Or Judge Turpin. And tries to force Melissa to marry him, but then, you know, he ends up dying whenever the the Mrs. Lovett character cuts the chandelier and it comes crashing down on him and it's a whole big thing. But the plot, of course... Basically Sweeney. <laughs> right. But of course, the plot, to some degree, is beside the point. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't always... We don't usually watch music. At least, I don't usually watch musicals for the plot. <gasps> what? It's a, spe- it's a spectacular genre. Part of, I mean, obviously, everyone watches movies for the plot, but it's more I mean, about... back in, in film school, I wrote a paper about how porn and musicals were basically the same thing. You watch for the moments of spectacle. The plot is just an excuse to tie things together. Yeah, essentially. I mean, even in an integrated musical where mm-hmm. the, the plot and the numbers, like the the numbers advance the plot rather than just mm-hmm. being sort of abstracted. Like yeah. in, in this sense, like most of Shmigadoon and Shimikago are both integrated because the numbers are part of the mm-hmm. story. But even then, but even so, but even so, you look forward to those numbers because they're the thing that give you the excitement, the feelings. Of Schmigadoon. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, of uh, those millions of Schmigadoon, yes, yes, but I meant just generally. Which brings us to like the final scene of the second season, where having broken down and gone through the emotional journey of being in Chicago, having spent extensive time with Titus Burgess, who again I need to reiterate, I really love in this role. Like he mm-hmm. is just sinking his teeth into this role. Mm-hmm. It is exquisite. And the set. And the set. <laughs> Talk, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago. With Mommy Dearest, you know, Faye Dunaway eating the scenery, mm-hmm. like, but chewing it, like, <laughs> and her co-stars bite by bite. Titus Burch is doing that, but thank God he knows that he's doing exactly. it. Like, he understands the assignment and knows that as yes. this kind of character, it's his job. I mean, that's why you hire him. Right. <laughs> and he's also just a really great singer. Like, yes. he really knows how to belt him out. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so having, you know, gone on this voyage of self-discovery, Belissa and Josh then return to the real world, which is still very black and white, appropriately. As they walk into the distance and the camera like pans away from them, the whole world starts to suffuse with color. And I was like, that's a really nice ending and very appropriate for the entire show. I mean, mm-hmm. if it ends up that it's only the second season is the final one, I thought that was a really emblematic way to end a show that's basically a musical. Like, there's the return of joy and life and, you know, all the things that we associate with the utopian pleasures of the musical in the cinematography itself. I was hoping for just sort of like an I wish moment in Into the Woods. It's sort of right at the end that undoes everything. I was hoping for something like that. But <laughs> Oh, well, I was more than happy to accept that as its final, like, little send-off to all of us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I will say that I found everything about both Shmigadoon and Shimikago just an absolute delight. Everything from the numbers to the moment when, you know, Josh and Melissa arrive in Shimikago and they're like, oh, this isn't what we thought. And like, you know, the the constant self-referentiality mm-hmm. of it is really, I think, what gives it the sort of that little bit of extra spice that would have that helps it to stand out from the crowd yes and I mean it's in that way it's also like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend because it's always unclear in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend the extent to which these numbers are part of the reality of the film or show and part of which they're just part of 
uh, Rebecca's imagination. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, it's obviously the case that almost all, always they're just products of her imagination. Yes. But there are sometimes what almost seems as if the characters are cognizant of what they've been doing. You're doing yeah. So I, I don't know. I find that just a really interesting phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The way these mu- these new kinds of musicals play with the characters' understanding of the genre in which they're located. Yeah. And the way in which we often use pop culture to make sense of our lives. Mm-hmm. Like we use our, like, oh, I'm such a Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Well, heaven forbid. <laughs> or I'm such you a, heard it here, folks. He finally admitted it. <laughs> I'm such a Melissa or I'm such a Josh. Like, you know, we, we sort of interpolate ourselves into pop culture. And so I like it when pop culture interpolates our interpolation. Yes. <laughs> you know, so there's this sort of constant play of recognition Mm-hmm. Um, both within the set text itself, but with us as audiences. Mm-hmm. So that seems like a good place to end. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a pretty robust discussion of the musical. <laughs> robust in the move. Yes, lots of robusting around here. We're, uh, we're we have large robusts here. <laughs> um, but I, on a final note, to reference the Golden Girls, you know this show is very special. Mm-hmm. So I hope that you'll go out and check it out if you haven't already. So give us a moment, and we'll be right back with a PSK. All right, well, of course, this is June. These This whole month is the high holy days of gay life. Why is that? Well, I'm taking Aaron's gay card <laughs> away from him. <laughs> he is just speaking facetiously. I think that that is unacceptable kind of joking. Here. That facetiously, that has all the vowels. It does have all the vowels. A E I O U, and sometimes Y. Mm. No, maybe. facetiously always has a Y. <laughs> Ladies and gents and enemies, I cannot with this man sometimes. <laughs> I cannot. Anyway, it is the High Holy Days of Pride Month. So I hope you're all out there celebrating Pride. We just went to a small town pride. Now, last year when we were recording this pod, we went to the Salisbury Pride where we caught COVID. So thanks for that, gays. But this year, we, you know, we're going to go to several prides, the first of which was Annapolis, which is a small town pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, as such, it was perhaps devoid of some of the more, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Debauched elements that we associate with pride. You know, there were no shirtless boys. He wanted no- naked men's and they won't, and they weren't any. Contrary to what my friend called me, I'm not a sex pest, but I do think that Aaron's giving me that. <laughs> But what I was going to say is that much like Salisbury's Pride, it was tame mm-hmm. as far as such things go. Very few drag queens, more mm-hmm. of like community groups and churches and mm-hmm. youth groups and all that kind of thing, which is good. And I, I want to preface that by saying it's good. Um, and I also think that small town prides in particular even though they're not as glitzy and glamorous, although they don't get the kind of attention of some of the major urban centers or even more the bohemian places, mm-hmm. I think they serve a very important function for the people who live there and also for the surrounding rural areas who see pride and can feel safe there and to feel seen, which of course mm-hmm. is the big part of pride, which is why it mm-hmm. exists in part. And I just wanted to reiterate that, you know, there's something really valuable about these small town prides that is really worth reiterating again and again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually have something I'd like to say about that. Um, TJ and I have very different sort of pride experiences. Um, what was your first pride, DJ? Well, my first pride, this is a deep cut, I suppose, obliquely, was in Capital Pride in uh, uh, 
Charleston or Charleston Pride. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's in Charleston, West Virginia, because I obviously grew up in West Virginia, and that was the big Pride. I think it was basically statewide. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Prides have now proliferated most towns in West, bigger towns in West Virginia. We don't have any big cities, as Aaron for, likes to remind mm-hmm. me. But that was my first one. It was 20 years ago, actually, oh, nice. in 2003. And of course, you know, back then it was still a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Pride is always a big deal. But I mean, remember 20 years ago, Things were very different mm-hmm. culturally, socially speaking. Like exactly. This is the Bush administration. So, you know, all of that was in the back of my mind while I was at Pride that year. Exactly. Whereas my first Pride was uh, two years after yours, and it was New York Pride. <laughs> so, you know, the grand <laughs> pappy of Pride parades, it seems the like. The Pride. <laughs> right? It's a huge, huge, huge spectacle. And so that was my first Pride. And then very shortly after that, moved to San Diego, did that Pride where not only did I go, I participated in Pride eight times living in San Diego. And of course, went to San Francisco Pride, the actual granddaddy (laughs) Pride parades. So I've done the big Pride thing a bunch. Mm. But I also have been directly involved in a lot of smaller prides as a performer. Again, when I was living in San Diego, not only did we perform every year with San Diego Pride, you know, in in the city, sort of in the heart of things, we also got invited every year to an increasing number of smaller local prides nearby. So I got to not just go and watch, I got to be part of doing that. And one of the things that I want to say about small town prides is the importance, not just of sort of being seen in theory, but of being seen specifically. And of mm. looking at your pride parade and actually seeing the people you know, mm-hmm. people, your friends, your neighbors, your family, people that you're involved with, seeing them there as a part of that, and or you being in the parade and seeing your friends, family, other folks that you're involved with in your life out in the audience. That's a really powerful thing. The one thing about big city prides is that they can feel very much like a spectacle, kind yeah. of more like a show. Right. Where you don't necessarily have that same personal connection that you might have with a smaller town pride, where there's the expectation that you're going to see folks you know. Right. Whereas with the big prides, maybe, maybe not. If you know folks that are in the big performing groups or the big organizations, yeah, you might see them marching by on a float. But a lot of folks show up there knowing they're not going to know anybody. Right. Whereas in a smaller town, right, you actually see your town. You see your people up there. And I think that that matters in ways that me as a big city person maybe won't ever really fully comprehend. But I'm guessing that it matters for those folks. And that's why the small town prides happen and they happen over and over and over again. And why we keep spreading the locales where they happen. Because I think there's that personal connection. Right. I mean, you know, the more I think about this, I mean, we have to always be cognizant of like the broader social political climate. Like, obviously, we live in Maryland, which is a pretty blue state, not the part where we live. But, you know, Annapolis and its environments are Mm -hmm. fairly bluish, Mm -hmm. certainly when it comes to social issues. But, you know, and it's not as if, like, the country as a whole isn't moving in that direction. But there's still a very vocal and very visible and very violent, often contingent, mm-hmm. you know, who make it their mission to make life as difficult as possible for queer people. That's why, you know, I, I like what you say about spreading pride to more and more locations, mm-hmm. because I do think that it's very valuable to show the people who live in those small towns that, you know, you're not alone. And I think it also has the added benefit, you know, talking about you know the locals mm-hmm. <laughs> and showing them that there are people in their community who will 
suffer, you know, explicitly and in mm-hmm. real life if these, you know, right-wing nutjobs get control of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that brings, as we've long known, bringing, like, queer people out from this sort of vague general threat into the real world can have really powerful effects. Mm-hmm. And so I think that makes it even more important that these small-town prides continue and that you know i was really happy to see as many people as i saw at the annapolis parade like it was a pretty big parade and there were a lot of people in the festival itself Mm -hmm. like i thought that was really you know really great and even here in salisbury i know that they've already put up the pride flag which admittedly i mean neither annapolis nor salisbury are particularly large but it's still nice to see that there Mm -hmm. is enough momentum to keep these things going mm-hmm. year after year yeah and i know and when we, we were talking at the parade about this and you mentioned it a little bit earlier about how for you it's like you do kind of miss you know the more adult <laughs> oriented parts of pride that historically have been parts of pride celebrations kind of across the country one thing that i think is sort of interesting about the more sort of family friendly approach and the scale of these events is that i wonder if you know, for a city like Annapolis or for, you know, cities of about, of about that size, if these pride events actually become so mainstream that they just kind of become the big event that gets everybody to come outside. Mm. Imagine that if, imagine that instead of say the 4th of July parade or the Thanksgiving day celebration, that it was actually pride that got the entire town to come out right. and think about what that would mean for us queer folks, especially for younger folks, Mm -hmm. if that was like people, like the thing that gets everybody to celebrate is us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can go out to your local pride, we'll be going to another one next weekend um, in Dover, Delaware. And then two weeks after that, we're going to yet another smaller town pride. So it's a big pride festival here for the, girly west household a big small pride (laughs) there's a lot of pride in this house but anyway so yes happy pride month everyone of course we'll be back with you soon with more queer friendly festivities and whatever else we feel like talking about right all right well as always thank you for joining us here at queens the bees i'm not going to bother beleaguering aaron with whether he's going to be on social media, because we know he isn't. I mean, you can always ask. I know, but it feels like a waste of time. <laughs> anyway, so if you are interested in finding us on social media, you can find me on Twitter, unfortunately, at TJ West and the number three. You can also find me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. And you can also find us, our, as, as in the Queens of the Bees podcast, on Instagram at Queens of the Bees, um, all one word. You can also look me up on Letterboxd, where I'm at Thomas West 3, I think, or TJ West 3. Just look it up. Thomas West Letterboxd is fine. Whatever. Uh, you'll find my reviews there of various films that may be or may not be queer-oriented. And you can also find me on Substack, where I write a newsletter called Omnivorous, where I write about gay stuff, but also sundry other things. It's just whatever pops into my mind. That's why it's called Omnivorous. So please do feel free to check out my writing there, in case you're not tired of hearing what I think about everything. Um, you can also subscribe, which is very helpful. Which, Speaking of which, please remember to rate and review our podcast wherever you get that, because building visibility is very important for a little podcast like ours that has yet to be the you know, the big star that we would quite like to be. So please do that if you get the chance. We do appreciate everyone who rates us, whether it's good or bad or otherwise. So for Queens of the Bees, I'm TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we will see you next week. Bip, bip.